Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. Now we're continuing our series on the kingdom this morning, and um, the subject I want to look at is kingdom growth. We covered some of those aspects previously, um, but there's something up to, I think that God wants to say to us this morning. You know, as a church, we are seeing growth, aren't we? We are seeing people responding to the gospel. We are seeing programs like Pebbles that's growing and growing. Uh, life groups are growing in number. And there's lots, you know, the DNA program, the training program that's out there. God is doing something. He is on the move. And sometimes, we, you know, we, we don't want to miss out on that. Over the summer, we were um, in Dorset on holiday. And um, actually, I might have a picture I wanted to show you. And um, when we was there, they had really heavy rain. If you remember, over it was September time, actually. Lots of heavy rain and high tides. And uh, this is the, well, it looks like a lot of water, doesn't it? And there are boats there. But in front of you is actually what's supposed to be the pier there, the concrete pier called the Cobb. But it was underwater. And everybody came down to see what was going on. And, but the waters just swelled. And that's the word they use locally. They said, oh, there's a swell on. Something. A swell on means that the rain and the tides combined together to raise the water level. And, and parts of that pier should be 10 foot above the water, yet the, rain, the, the sea came over the top. Now, don't worry, it's not a holiday slides this morning. That's not what you're here. <laughs> um, but we came back from that weekend away. And, um, a week away, sorry. And um, we came back to the time of prayer that we were having. Earthquake and then our time of prayer. And I felt the Lord speak to me from what I experienced there and said, I'm bringing a swell. I'm bringing something that's different, bringing something that's new, and he's doing something. You know, I was thinking, do there have to be conditions spiritually for this sort of thing to happen? You know, the reign of the Holy Spirit, sometimes we try and think too deeply. And, but, um, but it always has to be word-based, you know. It always has to be word-based. What does the scripture say about kingdom growth? And, you know, we are, this is our strap line, our BCC vision, to bring growing kingdom influence and transformation to every area of our lives, community, and beyond. Growing kingdom influence. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians this morning, from chapter 3, and I hope it's not too small, from the first 11 verses. Quite a few, but I think it's important. Paul says these words, chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he, knew, he, pl- he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, 
and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, we are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, I'm going on, this gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and straw, each one will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and that fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Very clear words there from the Apostle Paul. There are two particular subjects I want to just touch on before we move along because we, I've dealt with one before and Mark really dealt with that one last week. The first one is unity. This uh, chapter deals with the subject of unity to a certain degree. And the second one is the necessity of being a servant, a servant, a servant leader, but a servant in all that we do. You know, division is a sign of immaturity. That's what it says there in the text. It is a sign of people who are carnal. If people are carnal, they stir up strife by being divisive. Paul is being very clear there. And he's saying, you shouldn't be doing this. It's a sign of immaturity, maybe people who seek to be in charge or seek leadership or gain attention all the time. It is a sign of spiritual immaturity. doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, you can still be immature in certain areas. Paul is saying here, do not follow men or women. Follow Jesus. Do not you know, look for celebrities. If you look in the, the first chapter, it says some people are saying, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, and some are saying, I'm of Christ. And you think, oh, they're Christ-centered. But no, because the context of the, the, the words here are they're saying, I've got a special connection that you don't have. It's that. So we can be very immature. We know that denominations do not bring glory to God. People that are not believers look at, look at all these different names and things, and there's hundreds and thousands of them, and they say, what's going on with the Christian church? Why can't they all be one? Now, we're part of the Assemblies of God. It's a good movement of churches, but it's not something that says, oh, we're the best. In no way. Right from our national leadership team down, it's about kingdom, not about labels. And uh, so it's, it's not, it's about an ident- we're an identity of churches that are going forward, but we work right across with other denominations as well. It's not exclusive or anything like that. So we mustn't have division in the church. We mustn't have it amongst us if we're going to go forward and grow. What is the antidote? What does Paul say? Grow up. Just grow up. That's what he's saying there, isn't he? Seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit and grow up. Now, a little bit of background, because this does help us understand what's happening here, because Apollos is probably the one we least know amongst all of the characters here, Paul and 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 Peter, etc. Now, he was from Alexandra. Okay? He was Jewish, Jewish believer in Jesus. He was from Alexandra on the north coast of Egypt, a very large city at that time, a very intellectual city. There was a philosopher, a Jewish philosopher called Philo at that time, who was a very uh, adept speaker, uh, used the allegorical method. And so, so he would have come, as an, an, Apollo says, an inhabitant of that city, as a very clever man, very intellectual, very bright, and a very good speaker. And it says that in the scriptures. He was mighty, you know, mighty in the scriptures. He was able to refute people who came against him. So, he, you know, people said, not that he would have encouraged this, people said, have you heard Apollos speak? Apollos is speaking tonight. I'm going to church. <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. Um, we've got to be very wary of that, of being a personality cult. 
And uh, Apollos, of course, would not have encouraged it. And also in, in, in Corinth at that time, it was a Roman city, but very Greek. They had the, the patron-type system. People would patronise temples. That was a pagan practice to say, well, I gave money to the temple. I supported this speaker. And so sometimes that transferred across into the Christian world. I, I, I gave money to Paul. Well, I gave some to Apollos. Have you heard him speak? So there was a bit of that going on, you know, a bit of that going on. So Paul is addressing that culture and he's addressing the division that people are trying to cause. And he's saying, we're not like that because we are one. He says that. We are one. We are together. Both Apollos and I, we're not doing that. We're not encouraging that. And you are. But he says that they were, in this text there, we were servants through whom you came to believe. Servanthood is so very important. You must listen to last week's a message, if you haven't done that already, it's very important to listen to that. It's the example of Jesus, isn't it, that he was one who came to serve. And the cross is really the, the paradigm, the way of thinking we have when it comes to the gospel and our service. Everything must come through the cross. And that is a place of humility, isn't it? A place of surrender and a place of recognising how we should live our lives. They were thinking humanly. They should have been thinking through the cross. That's how it should have been. Well, let's look at some of the words I want to do that through that Paul uses here. Um, a nice picture of Apollos there. I thought a bit of illustration. This isn't real, by the way. Uh, nothing like that, but it gives you the idea, doesn't it, of him speaking and people sort of bowing down and being so excited by his speaking ability. Okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5 and the use of the words here. When Paul says, who then is Paul, Apollos? He says, but ministers, okay, the word ministers comes from the Greek root of diakonos, which is a servant, just a servant. That's what it means. In fact, originally somebody who waited on tables, we get that from last week. That's the original Greek meaning to it. Now, it moved on a bit, and generally it meant someone who served God in its New Testament uses, someone who served God or served others. But it is all about servants. It's all about serving one another. Whatever we do, in the kingdom of God, Paul on Apollo says, we are just instruments. We are here just serving you. That's all it is. If we move into our next section now, I want to look at some of these words, because these are really important. This is where I want to start talking about increase, okay? Because it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 8, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Then he says the words again, plants, waters, Increase, And in fact, the word waters appears two verses earlier, three, verse two, as fed. Okay, so fed or watered. So there's these words here, and it talks about God giving the increase. And the plants and the waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward. Now, planted and watered are in the aorist sense in the Greek. In other words, they are something that's been done. They are a completed work, something that we may do, just an ordinary thing that we do. Okay, and it's something... That is done. But if we look at the word increase in the Greek, we get the imperfect tense. And what that means is that it's continuous, continuous. It keeps happening. It keeps doing. So he's saying, OK, I did this and Apollos did that. Um, but actually, it's God who's doing everything. It's God who's always on the move. It's God who's always increasing. It's a continuing work. So what he's saying is we're just dipping our hand in, really. We're just doing what we're supposed to do, and it's God who's doing everything. So all the glory goes to him. You know, men's works come and go, but God is continuing his work, continuing it. God is doing something. He is always doing something. What is he doing? 
He's building his kingdom. He's always building his kingdom. Everything he's do, he is doing is to give increase and to build his kingdom. That's what he wants to do, and that is what he's doing. He said, of course, Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Another holiday picture, sorry. <laughs> now, my son there, Josiah, in front of this cliff face, and um, a couple of years ago I took this picture. You can see the size of the cliff face there. If I show you this picture here, which shows it a bit more expansive, that is the gate of hell. Okay, that is where Jesus was standing when he said these words. It's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Banaeus now. And all along that wall in the time of Jesus were temples. The Romans had identified it a place because of this hole. There was a hole where water used to come up. And in the superstitious religions of the time, they said, this is the gate of hell. If you go down there, you'll go down into hell. That was their viewpoint. The water came up. So it was held as a place of veneration. So all the way along here were temples. A temple to Pan, where the name Banaeus comes from, Panaeus. Um, but there were massive temples all the way along here to different gods, Roman gods, Greek gods. And they said, we're right by the gate of hell. So that is where we had these pagan temples. Now, when Jesus said those words to the disciples, he was here. So you can imagine him standing with his back to the temples and all the, the gate of hell and the, 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 the pagan gods. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the context of him saying those words, with the gate of hell behind him. So that gives you some context. He's saying it doesn't matter what the world is doing with its great big temples and its systems and its false gods. I am building my church, and nothing will stand against it. So that gives you a context. Now, I want to give you uh, three points here, okay? We can be bystanders, or we can be active in the kingdom of God. We have a choice, okay? We have a choice. So what's our role, okay? The planter and the waterer, we're using these two terms, it could be anything that we work in the kingdom. The planter and the waterer are unimportant in the whole picture, in the sense that they're not the ones that make the things happen, okay? Secondly, there needs to be a unity between the planter and the waterer, and and Paul says in verse 8, they're one, okay, working together. And the third one is, despite one, <laughs> despite the planter and the water being unimportant, each person has made a distinctive contribution for which they will receive a reward. Is that okay, that concept? You've got the one? So, planter and the water, okay, we're working. God gives the increase. Um, but in the sense of making things happen, it is God that makes things happen. It doesn't happen in our own strength. It happens as we do the bit of the kingdom that we're called to do. And we work in unity with others as well. You know, we are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. It doesn't say, well done, good and successful servant. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because actually, the key to success is being faithful. That's what they're tying, but it's, we've got to be faithful. And also, these are very important as well. This, what I've highlighted here in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 11. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building according to the grace of God. Okay, so we, it's God who owns everything. He's the author of everything that's happening. He's the one that's making things happen. And it's through the grace of God, in other words, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that we're able to do these things that make such a difference. God gives the increase. We have to work, but God gives the increase. And planting and watering are essential. It's our role. 
we have to just get in there with the flow and do what is happening. We have to work in unity, otherwise something will be missing. If you don't do your planting, my watering won't work. Plantering, is that a word? If you don't do your planting, my watering won't be any good. And if I don't do my watering, your planting won't be any good. You see, I need you and you need me. Essential in the kingdom. We need to work together and say, what is my role? What, what am I doing? What do I need to do there? You know, and, and when all is said and done, it's all service to God anyway and service to one another. That is what it's about. Now, the church is the vehicle of the kingdom of God at this moment. There is no other way of doing it. God said, I will build my church. Okay, so he's building it. He's growing. There's increase. And that's his vehicle for the kingdom of God in this present age. There is no other way. With all its faults and failings, the church, it is precious because that is what God has chosen to. You know, some people think that they own the church down through history, clergy and laity. We saw a bit of this program. I was watching a program on Canterbury last night, a history program, and I saw a little bit of it, you know, about the, the Church of England. There's some great Church of England churches. But, you know, it was very political, five, six hundred years ago, very political. You know, kings moving the archbishop into place, thinking they own the church, and the king trying to take control of the church because it was so powerful. And I thought, well, they don't own the church. Who owns the church? Jesus does. He bought it, didn't he, with his blood, and he owns it. He's the author of it, the beginning. He's the one who makes it and sustains it and keeps it going. You know, some people think, oh, you know, I've been in this church all my life, you know. They think they own a piece. You never own the church. I'm not talking about the building. You never own the church. And you no, nobody has any rights to say, it's my church. You can't. We may use that term, so, oh, this is my church I go to, but you don't own it. Christ owns it. It's his church. He's the one who's moving on. We're part of that body. It's all to do with attitude and perspective, isn't it? Now, you may not have heard of Robert Thomas. Okay, it's a very common name. In 1863... <laughs> In 1863, after he'd been married for five weeks, he set sail to go to China. He was going to work with Hudson Taylor, who had been there about 12 years. And um, four months to get there, and after five months, his wife died in childbirth. And her last words were, Jesus is precious to me. But, you know, it really hit him. He didn't know where to turn next, and he took some counsel, and they said, well, there's the Koreans. They need the gospel. And some Catholics have been there. Some got converted, then they got killed. Um, and it really became a passion of his to reach the Korean people. But no one was allowed from the West to go into Korea, even to trade on often pain of death. But he was desperate to reach the Korean people. And so he managed to pay um, some... I've got a picture of him here. Yeah, He managed to pay um, a shipping fee on an armed American trading schooner. And it tried to dock several times and was repelled by the Koreans. And every time he went near, he would shout in Korean, Jesus, and throw Bibles at them. <laughs> he'd been to Korea before. He knew a bit of Korean. He'd been there before, but he'd been thrown out. And um, finally, you know, he got on this schooner, and the schooner got stuck in the sort of side of the river. And the Koreans turned up, and the Americans panicked, and they shot some of the Koreans. And so the Koreans set fire to the boat. And it was a big disaster, and we don't know exactly what happened, of course, but he got ashore, and either he was killed instantly, giving Bibles out, or he was taken before a chief or a leader where he was beheaded, but not before he'd given the Bible out. But the fascinating thing about this was that, um, you know, as he gave these Bibles, a lot of the, the Koreans did what you would have done. They ripped up the Bibles, because it's good paper, isn't it? And they papered their walls with them in their homes, papered their walls all over. Um, and there they sat for a couple of decades until people began to read them, come to the house. 
And um, the nephew of the guy who'd, killed, who'd been involved in killing Robert became a believer. And then we saw the Korean revival break out. And now, of course, Korea has a very high percentage of, belie- of believers. I know many Korean Christians, when they come to England, they want to go to Wales. They want to go to the chapel where Robert grew up. And they say, this is where it came from. So there's someone who really understood that he didn't love his own life, but he knew what the kingdom was. He wanted to do. He wanted to do his planting. He wanted to do his watering. And he, his life wasn't important to, to him. You know, the church belongs to Christ. You know, I know that development is on the cards possibly here. What's happening next? We don't know. God is leading that way. But I know the, the leadership team, they're doing, not doing it for the sake of it. They're not doing it to build some sort of nice architectural building. No, the, the, the assets that we have are for the extension of the kingdom. And that's the only reason it's for. And that all that we use and all that we possess as a church is actually to serve Jesus and to serve the purposes of his kingdom. We did a, a, a series on legacy in the past, as many of you know. And um, that talked about how people had planted and watered in the past. And what we have now is because of their input, because they were faithful. And so what we are doing now as a church is planting and watering, looking at the next generation. You know, there's going to be young people in this church who are going to lead things, who are going to be influence, influencers. They already are, but they're going to be more so in the kingdom of God in the future. And so we are creating a legacy. You know, we really need to get in the flow of what God is doing. We really need to get in the flow and not miss out on what God is doing. Don't be an observer. You know, sometimes there's a point where we have to, you know, where we have to just listen to what God is saying. Take time out and listen to what God is saying to us. A number of years ago, I was, when I was in the civil service, I had to go to Cornwall. I was in, the late, in my late 20s, middle 20s, and it was the first time I'd ever flown. I had a sheltered life. Um, and I had to go instead of a minister, and it was a light plane. And uh, so I turned up at Gatwick, and um, they said, oh, we're going to do it. So I got in this plane. Oh, it was amazing. I'd never flown before. A small plane. And when we got nearer to Cornwall, um, the fog closed in, and they said, we can't land. I thought, this isn't good. This is the first plane. Uh, first time I've flown. Okay, so the fog was closing, and they said, we can't get to Newquay. We're going to have to try and, la- try and land. He said, try, try, try and land at Plymouth. So we, I can't see anything. It's just fog. I'm looking out the window. Fog. And then all of a sudden, I see houses, and they're like, here. I'm thinking, that's really close, below the plane. And it, apparently, Plymouth is like that. You come in over the top of houses. a bit scary. Um, but anyway, we got on the ground. First time I've flown. Um, and then... Then on the way back, I went to Newquay, and we'd had terrible weather in that area. There'd been the fog, but now there was rain, and there was wind. And I turned up to this airport, and there was nobody there. And I thought, what's going to happen? They dropped me off from the education authority, and I waited for a couple of hours, and then a few people turned up, a few other people. And then the plane turned up. It was the only plane in the airport, and it was very small, just a few people. And I got on this plane, and the plane went out on the, on the, onto the, sort of, you know, taxied out a bit, and I could see the pilot, he's sitting in front of me here, and, and the plane is going like this. The wind is blowing, I'm thinking, uh, the, wi- the, w- the wind had been, you know, shaking the windows of the, the what's it called, the terminal. And now the plane was moving, I'm thinking, no, I'm going to die. <laughs> and, and, um, and then, he, so we went out onto the runway, and the plane is moving, and the wings are moving left, and then they're moving right, and I'm looking at the pilot, he's sitting in front of me, and his hand on the on that, whatever they call that thing there. And I'm thinking, you know, this is crazy. And then the plane's still moving, and all of a sudden the wind dropped. 
And he went, whack, he brought it back, and we were off that runway and into the air like this. And then the plane banks at Newquay, and you look out the window, and there's all those rocks of the North Cornwall coast. And I think, this is my first time I've flown. Um, second time. And, and, uh, but I thought, wow, that is really scary. But what it taught me was, is that that pilot was waiting for the right time. He was just waiting. He knew when the time was when he would be able to get that plane off the ground safely and get in the flow of what was happening. Now, sometimes we just rush ahead, don't we? You know, we think, oh, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to do that. But sometimes we need to think, right, I need to be in step with the Holy Spirit. I need to see what his timing is. I need to see when he is releasing me into a certain area rather than rushing into it and just doing a job, just doing my thing. That's not what it's about. It's getting into the flow of what is happening. I'm sorry for those I've, I've gone completely off script. I know that. <laughs> there was a, about 20 years ago, something really marked me, 25 years ago. I was in church, and we had two missionaries from China. And they were preaching and doing all the stuff they do. I was a young Christian. And they said that God was calling someone to go to China, to go onto the mission field. And I thought, that's me. God's calling me. And, of course, they made another appeal, and everybody sat there, and it was really quiet. I thought, it's me, I've got to go out there. And then they said, last time, God is calling you. God is calling you. I thought, no, he is, but I'm not going to do anything about it. (laughs) And they sung the last song, and we all went home. And then that evening, I had a dream. And I was running with suitcases, running, running with suitcases. It was heavy. And I got to the end of the dock. And the bloke said to me, he said, you're too late. He said, that's the boat to China, mate. You've missed it. And I felt so bad. And the next day, I think I spoke to someone at church, and I said, I've missed the boat to China. And they said to me, it may not be China you're being called to. But what he was saying, you know, God was saying to me, was don't do that again. Next time I ask you, you just reply, all right? You just say, yes, I'll do it. Don't, Don't wait. And so that's, I say, it's marked me for now. If God says, do it, I sometimes might have a bit of a discussion with him, um, but I know I'm going to lose. <laughs> when God calls us to do something, we have to respond and we have to do something about it, don't we? Yeah. Don't be an observer. Let's learn the lesson from the life of Esther. I've got something to read from Esther. These are famous words in the book of Esther. Okay, probably the most famous words in this book. A book that doesn't mention God. Interestingly, it's read at the Feast of Purim. Jewish people read it lightheartedly, and so they don't want to mention God's name um, flippantly. Um, however, there is, if you know, don't know the story of Esther, it was in the kingdom of Persia under Ahasuerus, Xerxes. I've not seen this film. There's a film called 300, apparently, that's about the battle of um, uh, the, the, the Persian Empire trying to take the Greek Empire. Well, that's the king in the time of Esther, not a good man. Um, so, he, uh, an edict goes out in the kingdom to kill all of the Jewish people, just kill them all. Okay? And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, okay? and Esther has now become the queen of Persia, wife of Xerxes, he says to her that we're all going to be killed. He said, this edict has gone out. When it happens, all of the Jewish people will be destroyed. So he prays and he fasts and he comes to her and he says this word. Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you would escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. 
Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which was forbidden, she said, against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Those words go down in history as a woman who stood up for what was right. However, look at Mordecai's words. He talks about God very clearly. He says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. He knew that God had a covenant promise with the Jewish people. He had said to them, I will bring you back to the land and I will bless you. So Mordecai knew this is going to be all right. It's going to be tough, but God's going to get us through and he will bring deliverance. But what he's saying to Esther is, and there are his words. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Of course, it wasn't the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of Persia. What he's saying is, this is your opportunity. Your opportunity to be used of God. Your opportunity to get involved. If you don't, then you'll just be a bystander. You may perish and you may look at what God is doing and saying, isn't that wonderful? But actually, you know what? You could have been a part of it. You could have said, yeah, I'm going to stand up for what God wants. I'm going to step forward in the kingdom and I'm going to make a difference. I'm not going to be an observer. I'm going to be part of the plan. And that's what Paul is saying, isn't he? When he says, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, we did our bit and God gave the increase. We got involved. We didn't step back. We didn't miss the opportunity. And God worked through us so that he got the glory. But we can say on that day when the rewards are given out, yeah, I was a good and faithful servant. That's the challenge for us today. Don't be observers. Don't be bystanders. Get involved. What God is calling to do, what he's speaking to you about, say, yes, I'm going to be part. I'm going to create a legacy. I'm going to be part of that kingdom. I'm going to do my planting. I'm going to do my watering and whatever God calls us to do. He's got something for us. So let's pray. Let's pray because I think God wants to speak to people's hearts today. I really do. Father, I just come to you and I just say, Lord, I just want to surrender. I don't want to miss out, Lord, on what you're doing because your kingdom is growing, your kingdom is increasing, your kingdom is expanding. Lord, it's not going to stop, Lord. We're looking forward to that day when you return, but in the meantime, there's work to be done. And Father, I don't want to be missing out. I don't want to just watch it happening and say, isn't that great? I want to be part of that, Lord. And Father, I pray for us today, Lord, help us, Lord, to just jump in there with both feet, to be part of your of building the kingdom together in unity and in a servant attitude. We want to plant and we want to water and we want you to give increase. We know that you will. We want to be part of it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Praise God.